Welcome to episode one of the GAM Talks podcast. Today we'll be talking to Niall Gallagher on European equities, looking at his focus on factor investing, why investors have been favouring US equities and why he feels that European equities could be much more of a global play going forward. Don't forget to listen to our important legal information at the end of this podcast. I'm joined by Niall Gallagher, Investment Director for European Equities. Welcome, Niall. Thank you. The first uh, question to you really is, is how does Europe look in terms of relative valuations and relative upside? The European equity market is very reasonable indeed uh, in terms of valuation. The market trades at about 13 and a half times earnings, which is pretty much in line with where it's been over the last 30 years or so. Uh, we see lots of shares that have got pretty decent upside. So we think it's a market that, certainly compared to its own history, is attractively valued. Uh, when we then compare valuation of equities to fixed income, to bonds, uh, it looks staggeringly good value. The dividend yield on European equities is many times the dividend yield you get from earning sovereign bonds. So it's pretty attractive. And also compared to the US, we think that Europe offers good value too. And does, does that, um, do those valuations lead you towards particular sectors, uh, kind of on a, on a standalone basis and, and relative to other markets like the US? The, the thing about valuation is you always have to look at the valuation of stocks relative to the prospects of the business. And we are really medium long-term investors. So when we're buying something, we're thinking about what are the returns prospects for this business on a multi-year horizon. Uh, we are finding that there are some very good businesses in Europe at some quite attractive prices. There's always going to be some attractive technology stocks, and there are some areas where Europe leads the world, things like uh, ASML, which is a manufacturer of uh, equipment for printing semiconductor boards. It's a European company, and it's one where Europe is a world leader. So there are you know, good technology businesses here too, and they're reasonably valued. But also there, there, are, there is value in certain financial institutions too, and we find value in areas like construction. So there, there is value and there are good return potentials and there is decent growth across numerous areas of the European market. It's not just one or two areas. And I guess the, the perennial question with Europe is, um, does it remain very much a heterogeneous market rather than Europe as a whole? When you think about Europe as an equity market, try to break the link between thinking about the European economies and European equities. Uh, about 55-ish percent now of the revenues from the European equity market, certainly as represented by the MSCI Europe Index and other leading indices, are derived from outside of Europe. Uh, so we've got uh, upwards of 20% coming from Asia. Uh, we've got nearly 18% uh, or so coming from the US. Then there's other Americas, other parts of the world. So you, you really are in a situation where over half of the revenues are now from outside of Europe. Therefore, when you're thinking about the prospects of European equities, and we see it analysing our businesses, you can't just look at the European countries. Uh, so it's really quite global. And then obviously within uh, Europe, you know, you've got businesses like, say, a Nestle, which is listed in Switzerland, but Switzerland is about a percent of the revenues. So if you're thinking about Nestle, you know, Switzerland's kind of irrelevant other than the fact that it's listed there and has Swiss governance. So the answer is yes. It's a very heterogeneous market. It's quite global. Uh, people worry a lot about European economies from time to time. But very often that has very little relevance for the European equities that are listed in those markets. So uh, wh where they're listed is really just kind of a, a, a almost a, a, an irrelevance, a kind of a, an accident in some cases. A historical accident. Yeah. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean it's completely relevant because one of the uh, things we really like about European equities 
is there is very good gearing and exposure to emerging markets. So I think of some of the faster growing parts of the world. Um, and one of the structural thematics that I think is really very important is the growth of the Asian middle class. By most estimates, roughly around 500 million people or so, perhaps more, some estimates suggest it's up to 800 million people, will join the middle class, the global middle class, over the next decade or so from Asia. And some of the European businesses in some of the consumer areas, in some of the luxury areas in particular, uh, but also some of the kind of quasi-industrial areas too, you know, think elevators, the big elevator brands are European, like Schindler or Kone or Thyssen. Um, you know, these businesses are driven by what's happening in Asia, and it's the growth of the Asian middle class that really drives the growth prospects. On the other hand, when you invest in these companies, they are domiciled in countries where you're getting uh, developed market uh, standards of corporate governance. They have corporate governance similar to what we have in the UK, independent boards of directors. Uh, they have the very similar rule of law, because we're all part of Europe after all. And as a consequence of which, you can get exposure to the really good growth themes whilst feeling confident you're getting developed markets, you know, potentially better forms of corporate governance, which I think is very important in investing in companies. And that feeds nicely into something I wanted to ask you about, which which is the, the broad area of risk. Um, and I know something you've been keen to talk about in the past is factor risk. Can, yeah. can you explain kind of what, what you consider regarding factor risk and how that plays into what you do? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic. And obviously for anybody who's investing now, you will have heard of factor risk because somebody will probably have tried to sell you uh, a smart beta fund or a systematic fund or a CTA or a, a factor-based ETF. They've all got different names, but they essentially do the same thing. Um, very, very simply and very generically, if we divide risk into two types, into what's called stock-specific or idiosyncratic risk, and then what's called factor risk. And factor risk is anything that has a common thematic. So it could be stocks with very high momentum, the momentum factor. It could be stocks with very low price volatility, the low vol factor. Or it could be stocks with high beta, the, the beta factor. Or it could be capitalization, so small cap, large cap. Or it could even be things like growth or value. Um, my belief, and it's been a belief for a very long time, is that people who invest with an active fund manager are really paying for the stock-specific risk, idiosyncratic risk. If you want to buy factor risk or any kind of uh, exposure to a particular type of factor exposure, you can buy it very cheaply. You can buy a factor-based ETF, you can buy a systematic fund, you can buy a smart beta product, and they tend to be very cheap. What you're buying with a stock picker is the stuff you can't buy in these generic forms of fund. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's particularly important now is that as factor-based investing has grown, so we've seen over the last decade or so, systematic, smart beta, factor-based GTFs, as these have grown, they've become a larger part of the traded market. And that means from time to time, certain particular factors become very hot uh, or popular or maybe expensive. So, so right now, uh, the factor that is particularly hot is low price volatility. So stocks that have low price volatility have been bought by people in factor-based baskets. Some of these stocks have become quite expensive, and as a consequence of which uh, they have risk because the valuation is high. So it's something that I think active managers should focus on because if you're not careful, you can end up thinking you're a stock picker but actually ending up with very high concentrations or exposures to a factor, and that factor may be hot. And then when there is some kind of factor rotation, the performance will suffer. So is there a danger that a stock which looks cheap could actually be a value trap? Yeah, the value trap uh, analogy, I think, is a really powerful one. 
Um, and the answer is yes to your question. One of the things that obviously we're well aware of, as are others, is that we're living through a period of great technological change, innovation. Uh, it's often given fancy labels like Industry 4.0 or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's genuine. There is stuff happening. There are applications of technology that have become more embedded in industrial processes, in consumer processes, and that is changing the dynamics of an industry. So we can think about, you know, all of us in terms of our banking and financial services. You know, now you can get services from companies like Revolut. Uh, it's not a stock market company, by the way. It's not listed. But, you know, I think Revolut's a business that's quite well known. People who uh, are with Revolut will, you know, recognize that you are getting very attractive foreign currency rates when you go abroad. Very low commissions, you're getting quite decent rates. That's a disruptor. But it's also a new business model that's being enabled by technology. So we have to be very aware that there is this kind of disruption going on. And that can create stocks which look to be cheap, but actually they're not cheap. They're value traps. Mm-hmm. Another great example, and one we spend a lot of time thinking about, is the car sector, the automotive sector. Now, the car sector, many people will tell you, is very attractively valued. And if you screen it, it's certainly the case that many car stocks look to be extremely cheap. But the question is, what does a car sector look like in five years' time? So we've obviously got ride hailing, so Lyft and Uber. And I guess some futurists claiming that young people won't buy a car, they'll use Uber instead. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Perhaps when they have children, they'll want to uh, have a car to drive them around in. But irrespective of that, we also have this great need to uh, decarbonize transport. So we're going to have to, over the next decade or so, maybe 15 years, shift from the traditional internal combustion engine to an electric car. That requires enormous amounts of money to be spent by the car companies. And they have to phase it right. They have to spend the money and get the cars into production at a point in time where customers want to buy them because there is the infrastructure to charge them and they can uh, have confidence that when they get an electric car, it's got the range they need. Um, These are very, very big bets the car companies are having to make. There are huge amounts of money uh, being put down for this kind of thing, and it's plausible that some of them may get it wrong. They may not have a business in seven or eight years' time because they haven't spent enough, uh, or they may have fantastic opportunities to take market share. So we really do have to kind of think around some of the technological shifts going on and what it kind of means. And actually, if a stock is very cheap, is it cheap because the market has got something wrong or is it cheap because the market is really saying collectively, we're not quite sure what this business is worth because in five years' time, we don't know where it's going to be, if it'll be around at all. Yeah. So the value trap thing is, is kind of key. And that's you know what we do. We, we spend our time doing research. We do a lot of work uh, using an expert network. So we talk to a lot of... Uh, industry consultants. We talk to people who are, you know, sometimes scientists or engineers, uh, trying to really kind of work out where some of these shifts are going in companies that might be disrupted, or alternatively, might benefit from disruption. Yeah, um, you touched on it there, now, But do, do you think, for example, that autonomous vehicles are inevitable, and we're going to see them at some point in the future? Uh, if we do, um, I think we're talking a very, very, very long time away. I think the electric. Um, aspect is much sooner. There are electric cars right now. Um, it was announced this week that Porsche have a new electric car at the Porsche Taycan, which is not cheap, but looks to be a fairly fantastic car. <laughs> As one um, would expect. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that is, we're going to see more of that. There are a lot of electric cars being planned over the next few years. Volkswagen have a huge plan to bring out lots of uh, electric cars. So the electric car is coming. Autonomous vehicles, I think, are a long way off. Now, that doesn't mean that the technology that you will use for fully autonomous doesn't get utilized as you go along. So right now, more and more cars have automated braking. 
uh, or they have lane management, or they have some aspect of self-parking. So you'll get some of the aspects of the autonomous vehicle embedded in the cars you know, progressively. Yep. But a fully autonomous car, I think most industry thinking is you're looking at probably the decade after next. Okay. Recently, we've seen outflows from European equities, but at some point, do you think investors will start allocating away from US equities? And if so, why do you think they should choose Europe? It really goes back to the, the point I made uh, a while back that over half of the revenues now are derived from outside of Europe. Now, that's not to mean that we're very negative on Europe itself. You know, there are things that are going on here which are interesting. But I think if you are really looking at US companies, then very often there may be a competitor company or a supplier company or a complementary company, which for historical reasons is domiciled in Europe. And perhaps because it's in Europe and people sometimes invest based on macro reasons rather than based on looking at the fundamentals of the equity market, it might be a bit cheaper. So I think there is a good case in a, a global portfolio to have European exposure. So um, I think for that reason, Europe is interesting. You are correct to say there has been huge outflows from the asset class. The industry figures suggest that people have been disinvesting now in Europe for 18 months or so. Um, it hasn't really been a cycle where Europe has seen much equity inflows. There have been periods where money's flowed in, but lots of periods where money's flowed out. So it does feel that the asset class in Europe is a little unloved. I think it's unloved because of a lot of the macro and a lot of the political noise, but that doesn't really reflect what European equities are, You know, given the fact that actually a lot of the companies that are driven by what happens in, in Asia or elsewhere in the world. So, yeah, I think Europe is worth a look. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and looking more broadly at equities versus other asset classes, um, are, I guess you would say this, but are equities more appealing purely in valuation terms or are there other things that should attract investors towards them? I'm going to tell you my, my own opinion on what I do. I mean, you're getting nothing from putting money in the bank. Uh, most sovereign bonds now are negative yielding all the way out to 10 years and beyond in many cases. A large chunk of the entire fixed income market is uh, negative yielding. Uh, about two weeks ago, the corporate bonds of Nestle went negative, which is quite something. It means Nestle is paid to borrow money by people who actually borrow the, or lend them the money. So where are you going to make any money? I guess is the honest answer. In, in the case of our uh, European equities, we're seeing lots of companies with 3 4 5% dividend yields. They're growing their earnings or their book values. Valuations are attractive. The profits are growing. So I think that equities will continue to go higher because they are good value in absolute terms, or at least reasonable, if not very good, reasonable. Uh, but compared to what else is out there, they are still offering you a decent return, whilst if you invest in cash or in bonds, there's no return. Uh, Niall, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more of our insights, please visit our website, gam.com. Important legal information. The information in this podcast is given for information purposes only and does not qualify as investment advice. Opinions and assessments contained in this podcast may change and reflect the point of view of GAM in the current economic environment. No liability shall be accepted for the accuracy and completeness of the information. The mentioned financial instruments are provided for illustrative purposes only and shall not be considered as direct offering, investment recommendation or investment advice. Past performance is no indicator of current or future trends.